Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Well, uh, welcome to today's talk. Uh, I'm privileged to have Andrew McAfee with us. Andrew uh, works, he's joined MIT, and he will talk to us about the, essentially, the side effects, the good side effects of technology, and how this thing rapidly changes our status quo and the way we operate. So I would like to start by asking you, uh, we, we will have 40 to 45 minutes of roundtable discussion, and then we will be open to Q&As from the audience. How many of you know the Chinese game Go? Mm, that's good. Any of you, are there any Go players in here? Uh-huh. Okay. Do you know how many years this game is official? It's the most ancient game, uh, table game, more than 2,500. It's by years, uh, here's history. Do you know how more difficult it is to play Go compared to chess? So I guess we're not giving our attention. That's fine. <laughs> if you want to predict, like in chess, the next eight moves of the opponent, we have the black and the white opponent, you have 5.12 times 10 to the 20 mm. combinations. If you were to use the fastest computer in 2014, you would have to spend, uh, and that computer has 33 petaflops computing power. You would need four hours. Mm. So it was unimaginable back in 2014 to have a computer that can beat the world champions back then. In fact, everyone was making fun. Uh, they were programming computers not to play at the 19 by 19 area, but to play at at a very small one, nine by nine, because they could do all the computations back then. This is 2014, okay? And here comes, ah, okay. So here comes the interesting part. In 2015, Google came up with the DeepMind program AlphaGo. This is one year later. They beat for the first time a champion with two dance. Uh, Go has nine dance. Uh, They used deep learning back then. A year later, Google came up and they beat a nine dance master, Lee, Lee Sedol. During the play, all the grandmasters of Go thought that Lisa Dole would beat yep. Google. The result was four to one 
it was amazing how Google at that time with deep learning beat the most well-known player in the world. Mm-hmm. In 2016, uh, sorry, in May 2017, they beat the world champion. Okay. So over a period of two years, without having the necessary computing power, they came up with software, with algorithms, and they now have beaten every possible player. I'm unaware whether AlphaGo has ever lost a game for the past 12 months. It gives you an idea how technology changes. Uh, Things that we thought of being unimaginable three years ago have drastically changed. And with this short introduction, I want to bring into the cover uh, Andrew. Okay. Uh, he wrote an interesting abstract. He said, if you were to look at technology essentially five, seven years ago, the name that would come to your mind was Nokia. I'm talking for high tech. <clears throat> if you look nowadays, you get different names. Apple. Facebook, Google, and those companies that dominate now the market can easily disappear in the future, but right now they are the key players. Not only they are the key players, but based on their technology, they shape indirectly our future. Uh, It's not only this. If you look at the currency at most of the exchanges, we start seeing Currencies like uh, the crypto ones, Mm -hmm. the bitcoins, and so on. Uh, There are significant worries about security. The security of one nation may may contradict the security of another nation. So putting all of these things aside, uh, Andrew is with MIT. And essentially, he talks about, he will give us his feeling about machine, Platform, crowds, and harnessing our digital future. He has written, he's with MIT Sloan School of Management. So he is not what I call a tech guru at this point, but he knows how these uh, technology changes our future. He has published two books, one in 2000, if I'm correct, 14, and the latest one, Machine Platform Crowd in 2017. He has appeared in New York Times, a whole bunch of uh, CNN and so on. So without uh, spending too much time, we should start. So <clears throat> please give a big applause to Andrew. Okay. Okay. Thank you for that. And thank you all for coming out tonight. I, I really appreciate it. You bring up this fantastic example of the go-playing computer. And I think we continue to underestimate how, how fundamental this is. And the reason I believe that is nobody was expecting this. You brought that up. Uh, but the phenomenon is even more profound than that. There was a conference of AI researchers in 2015. About 350 of the world's top AI researchers came together. And they used that opportunity 
to give a survey and to ask these absolute insiders, these are the people creating the field, to ask them a bunch of questions about when they thought different things would happen in the world of artificial intelligence. So just a survey of the experts about what's going, what might happen in the future. And one of the questions they asked in 2015 was, when there, will there be a digital Go champion, a, 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 a computer playing Go that can beat the best human beings? And the consensus estimate among those insiders, the experts, in 2015 was that that would not happen until 2027. Like you point out, it actually happened the next year. It was this massive surprise in the world of artificial intelligence. It's worth spending a little bit of time on why it was such a massive surprise, why we all got it so wrong. Because for me, it, it indicates where we can expect to see innovations and, where we can, and why this wave of current technological progress is, is such a big deal. And, and after all the research that I've done, with my colleague and my co-author, Eric Brynjolfsson, I think we're actually in the early stages of the most profound period of change and technological progress that we've seen since the Industrial Revolution, since about 240, 250 years ago. So this is a big deal. Why do I think it's such a big deal? Uh, Go is, is a great example. It's a great microcosm of why this is such a big deal. Uh, as you point out, Go is, a, is a, conceptually, it's an extremely simple game to play. And if you have strategy nerd friends, they play Go. They think chess is kind of quaint. They think chess is like checkers or tic-tac-toe or something. Real strategy people play Go. Most people think it's the most pure, pure strategy game that human beings have ever invented. And as soon as we invented this weird new tool called the digital computer, 60, 70-ish years ago, we started trying to program them to be good at the games that people invented for themselves. Because games provide a very clear test bed for whether you're making progress or not. If you win the game, you're doing something right as a programmer. So the very first afternoon that we had computers, we programmed them to never lose at tic-tac-toe. That's a really, really easy game. Uh, in the, I think it's in the 80s or the 90s, Someone built a computer program, you know the game of checkers, that solved the game of checkers. That program will never, ever, ever lose to any human being or any other piece of technology in the game of checkers. That's a relatively easy game. Chess is obviously a great deal more difficult, but the world's best chess player has been a, human, a piece of technology instead of a human being for 20 years, since Deep Blue beat Garry Kasparov in 1997. And as you point out, a big part of the reason that computers beat people in chess is that the computers have so much processing power, they can evaluate most of the reasonable possible moves, and then most of the reasonable possible counter moves, then the counters to that move. The, ru the rules for a good move in chess are kind of well known, and any chess player of any quality can look at a board and in an instant know who's winning the game. So for all these reasons, chess is kind of an easier problem than Go. And we had the world chess champion computer in 1997. And over the past 20 years, the gap between digital performance and human performance in chess has only gotten bigger. And that gap is now so big that a head-to-head -head competition between the world human chess champion and the world digital chess champion is actually not even interesting anymore. We know who's going to win. That gap is now so big, they asked a human grandmaster uh, in a little while back how he would prepare for a match against a computer. 
And the grandmaster said, I'd bring a hammer. Chess is really uninteresting. Uh, Go continued to be really interesting in the other direction. We kept on trying to build Go playing computers, Go playing pieces of software, and they were miserable failures. They were no good at all. A decent amateur could beat almost all of them. A professional player, and like you point out, there are at least nine levels of professional player, would have no problem with the world's best Go playing software. And there are Two main reasons why that is. You bring up the first one, which is that there are just too many possibilities for this brute force approach of, okay, what are the smart moves? What are the smart possible counter moves? What are the smart possible counter moves to that? You can't look that far ahead because the number of possibilities blows up too quickly. Even with a lot of computing, it doesn't work. By one estimate, uh, there are more possible legitimate go positions than there are atoms in the observable universe. And that's actually way too conservative. As far as we can tell, if every atom in our universe were itself a universe full of atoms, there would still be more possible Go games. So brute force computing power is not going to get you very far in this game. So if you can't do that, then you have to be strategic, right? Then you've got to go figure out very clever ways to play the game and program them in. And the classic way to do that is to go watch what people do, but go sit down with a top-level Go player and say, okay, explain why you made that move that you just made. Here's the real problem with Go. If I went to to Lee Sedol or another top-level player and I wanted to understand his approach and his strategy to the game, and I said, okay, explain why you made that move that you just made, the answer back, very honestly, a completely honest answer would be, I don't know. And that, that doesn't make any sense. You made a move. It, you, know, you must be able to explain your strategy for this. It turns out they actually can't. And the reason we can't is in many, many cases, our own knowledge is inaccessible to us. We have some clues. We have some ideas. We really don't know how we know what we know. And over and over again with top Go players, they, when asked to explain their strategy, they would say something like, look, My brain happens to be good at this task. I've been studying this task, this game, intently for decades. And after I think and watch the board and reflect, the right move occurs to me. I don't quite know where it comes from. I certainly can't explain it to you in a way that you can embed in software. And the only way we know that it's the right move, that it's a good move, is I win the game. That's the only indication we have how good it is. So you can imagine when, think about a programmer confronted with that situation, they really don't have a lot to work with. They can't simulate their way to victory. They can't code the strategies because nobody can explain the top-level strategies. You can explain low-level strategies. Low-level strategies will not get you victory over a good player because what good players do is break the, the common rules, the common heuristics of the game. So there's just We kind of thought that Go was a dead end. And we tried things. We were, we were making different kinds of progress. But it really, as recently as 2015, the consensus among the experts was this is at least a decade away, maybe more. And then in 2016, like you point out, uh, this startup in London called London DeepMind, which I'm sorry, Google DeepMind, got bought by Google, challenged Lee Sadal, the stratospherically good Go player, to a five-game match. And Sadal thought that he would beat the the computer easily. He, He had no doubt that he would win the match and he lost four games to one. The world of Go was not expecting this. 
The world of artificial intelligence was not expecting this. The world of machine learning was not expecting this. By the way, you can actually stream an amazing documentary about the match between AlphaGo and Lee Sedol called AlphaGo. If you're, inter if you're interested in this topic at all, I highly recommend it. It's a really well done film. So what happened? What did the team behind AlphaGo do to actually defy all the predictions and lead to victory? Um, the original version of AlphaGo did two things. It was a combination of two main approaches to teaching a computer to play Go. The first one was essentially an extended pattern matching exercise. And the reason it's called machine learning is to oversimplify a bunch. If you show one of these systems a bunch of patterns and then a bunch of results, so think of a bunch of images of uh, a, a bunch of x-rays and then a bunch of diagnoses about did this person have pneumonia or not. What the system will do is learn to associate those patterns and learn to diagnose pneumonia on its own. So the AlphaGo team did a variant of that. They took about 200,000 high-level Go games that had been played throughout history. And again, I'm oversimplifying terribly. They fed them all into AlphaGo, built a machine learning system, and then they said, look, here are 200,000 examples of how to play this game. You figure it out from here. You figure out what moves, what sequences lead to victory, lead to winning this game from analyzing these 200,000 games played throughout history. That was part of what they did. The other part of what they did was essentially say, okay, with the knowledge that you have, that you think you're acquiring, play go against yourself and test these theories that you think you have about how to play the game correctly, and you're gonna get better by playing against yourself and learning what works and what doesn't. So that combination of showing a bunch of examples, and then it's called adversarial play, just play against yourself and, and, and try to come up with more conclusions about what, lead, what leads to victory. This actually led AlphaGo to beat Lisa Dahl in the spring of 2016. And like I said, it was a big deal because we were not expecting this. What's happened since then I think represents an acceleration even in this area because as you point out, AlphaGo has gone on to play a bunch of other top players and it's just not losing anymore. The absolute world champion played earlier this year and when he was done, he posted something on the Chinese equivalent of Twitter that I think is pretty fantastic. He played AlphaGo and then afterward he said, I don't think a single human being has touched the edge of truth in the game of Go. And I find that a pretty extraordinary statement. This is at least a 3,000-year-old game. We've been studying it very, very intently. We really want to learn how to play this at a high level. And what the experts, the best players on the planet are saying right now is not just this piece of technology plays the game better than we do. They're saying it plays the game differently than we do. It is taking a fundamentally different approach to this game of Go, ones that we didn't think of in about 3,000 years worth of play. And the insiders in the world of Go are really excited these days because they have something to learn from. They have, a, they have another set of examples, another set of patterns, another strategic brain out there in this domain that they can hopefully learn from and improve their own performance. One statistic that I heard was that before Lee Sedol played against AlphaGo, he was winning about 75% of his matches against other top players. He was a very good player. Nowadays, he's winning about 95% of his matches against other players. So this 
learning that we take from the digital world is helping us improve our own performance. And I think that's pretty fantastic. The DeepMind team has not stopped. They continue to innovate at a remarkable clip. And earlier this year, they announced that they had made more progress. They had built a technology called, I think it was called um, Alpha Zero, where, again, it became a very, very good Go player, but they only used one of those two approaches. And for Alpha Zero, what they did not do is they did not even give it those 200,000 examples from history. They gave it no set of patterns to learn from. All they did was build a technology that could learn from this adversarial play, from playing Go games against itself. That technology got up to a superhuman level in about 21 days. With learning, with learning from scratch, the only thing the technology was told was the rules of the game. It was given no information about strategy, no examples to learn from. From a cold start, it became, the word we hear a lot is superhuman, which means able to beat most people. It reached superhuman performance on the order of 21 days. So my colleagues and I read that, we were kind of blown away. Just last week, the DeepMind team published another paper where they had built another iteration of the same kind of technology. And this, think about it as a blank slate of technology. If they gave it Go or chess or a Japanese chess cousin called Shoji, any, th any one of those three games, the computer could learn and, and just only told it the rules, gave it no patterns, no examples to learn from. The computer could reach superhuman performance, not in 21 days, but in about 24 hours. So we keep seeing this improvement, this acceleration, and we're, we're building technologies that are not limited by what we know, by the knowledge that we carry around in our brains and that we cannot access. And you, you mentioned at the start that I'm optimistic about technology. I, I, with cautions, there are challenges ahead of us. In some cases, pretty real challenges. But the reason I'm optimistic is I see examples like that, and I start to think that we, we now have a set of tools that are more powerful and more versatile than anything we, we humans have had access to before to let us make progress on very, very difficult problems, very tough challenges, and that will let us make a great deal of progress in the world. Now, we clearly need to use these technologies appropriately instead of inappropriately, and we hopefully can talk about that tonight. But I get really excited when we, can, we have access to technologies that can push our own knowledge forward and that demonstrate these qualities of great flexibility and, and great adaptability and, and great insight. That, that, that makes me fundamentally pretty optimistic. I think the last thing we should say, we're, we're gonna talk for a little while. I'm actually really interested to hear what's on your minds and the questions that you're carrying around. So this is probably not a shy audience. Please don't be shy. We wanna open it up and I'd love to hear what's on your minds for a lot of our time together. Does that work? Do I have a promise not to be shy out there? You bet. Thank you, or at least some of us. So, uh, Andrew, do you think that the way business operates nowadays, including financial markets, everything, will change because of this technology in the near future? Uh, yeah, and the, absolutely. The only part of that, that your question that I'm not sure about is what does near future mean? Is it more like three years? Is it more like five? Is it 20? Is it 40? That's the only thing that's uncertain to me. But one thing we know from business history is that when a profound set of new technologies come along, there's a very interesting pattern. The companies that are on top, that are dominant, and think about the period when a new technology, a very powerful new technology appears, and then it diffuses and it becomes common in the world. 
the companies that are on top at the start of that period are usually not the companies on top at the end of this period. There's something about profound new technologies that is really hard for successfully well-managed, well-funded companies to adapt. And what usually happens is there's a huge wave of disruption, and we get a new crop of companies coming in and displacing the, the old ones over and over again. The main reason why seems to be that the leadership of the old companies simply can't envision, can't, can't really wrap their minds around all the possibilities inherent in the new technology, and they underestimate it over and over again. And it takes entrepreneurs and innovators and young companies to more fully realize the potential, and they, they outcompete, they displace the old companies. I think that's going to happen again. So is it natural to assume that powerhouses, even countries that are well, well adapting technology, they, might find, they may find themselves not at the bottom, but lagging yeah. those countries, those companies that have adopted high tech and they are not afraid to give it to the audience. Absolutely. One other clear pattern is that these profound periods of technological progress, these change the relative influence and the relative power of countries around the world. So Great Britain became the world's dominant power because of the Industrial Revolution. That's where the Industrial Revolution started. Uh, the American economy became the world's largest, the world's dominant economy during the period of electrification. We, back home, we seized that opportunity better than anybody else. We became the world's largest economy. You bring up the fact, is that what's gonna happen this time? And we could see a lot of change, a lot of disruption again. I think this is an amazing opportunity for different countries around the world to fully embrace the set of new technologies and maybe displace some of the old ones. That's absolutely possible. Are there any possible negative side effects of this sudden revolution in technology? The, the one that I'm most worried about is the fact that as technology races ahead, it can leave some people behind in their capacity as people who want to get an education and go offer their skills in exchange for a living. Uh, the, I think the achievement in American society that I'm personally proudest of and that I think was our most important achievement was creating a large, stable, prosperous middle class. The American middle class is, is, is a pretty amazing achievement and it helps with the stable society and democracy and prosperity and peace and all, all of these things. Uh, the middle class in America and other rich countries is under threat. It's under a lot of pressure. The wages are going down, the incomes are stagnating. We're still creating jobs, but we're not creating good old fashioned middle class jobs. We're creating lower middle class jobs. And there are challenges that come along with that. So the, the biggest thing that I'm worried about is what happens to that historically large and stable and prosperous middle class when a set of new technologies comes along that displaces not just companies, it displaces people, it displaces workers at a pretty high rate as well. Dealing with that, I think, is a big a challenge. Now, like we know, there are also security challenges. There are privacy challenges. We learned that uh, rivals of, uh, of America around the world were using social media technologies to meddle in our election in 2016. I was not really anticipating that. That's a challenge as well. So, Technology is not an unambiguous good. There are, with any super powerful technology, there are challenges that come along with it. I think the benefits outweigh the challenges. I'm hopeful that we can rise to the challenges, but one thing we should not do is ignore them or try to minimize them. Should the government more or less dictate or 
somehow create like a fence around these technologies in case one company becomes, dominates the market and because of its dominance yeah. may create an issue? No. No. Can you talk more about that? My, my career is just long enough. This is a question that comes up over and yes. over again. And I've heard different versions of it over the years. My career is just long enough to remember that we were having this exact same discussion about how IBM was too powerful in the early 1980s. We were absolutely having this discussion about how Microsoft was too powerful in the early 1990s and the mid-1990s. Uh, we were worried about AOL. I know that's impossible for people in this room to believe. <laughs> we were worried about AOL's dominance. We were worried about Netscape dominating the market for browsers. And like you point out, 10 years ago, back home in America, we thought we had missed the mobile revolution entirely because the, the two dominant countries, neither of them were, the two dominant companies, neither of them were American, were a Finnish company, Nokia, and a Canadian one, Research in Motion. And back home in the States, we said, wow, I guess we missed the, the, the mobile computing revolution, oh well. This, all of that seems ridiculous now. Just all of that is, is anyone here worried that IBM is too large and powerful and is gonna stifle innovation in the technology industries? It's, it's absurd. Microsoft is a very, very successful, still a very profitable company. Is anyone here worried that Microsoft is too powerful and is stifling innovation in technology? I guarantee you, 20 years ago, we were worrying about this. So the pattern that I see over and over in the high-tech industries is dominance. People get really worried about the dominance, but then disruption happens, and something comes along that none of us were anticipating that gives rise to another generation of very, very large companies. Then we worry about those companies, and I'm, I kind of think something else is going to come along. If I knew what that something was, I would be an entrepreneur. I would go, I would be trying to do that thing. Uh, but because I, I'm not that smart, I just have some confidence that something will come along that might make all of today's companies uh, not, any, not anywhere near as powerful as they are right now. I, I do believe that all large concentrations of power demand vigilance. I think that's a really important principle. To me, that's different than saying that all large concentrations of power must be broken up. I don't believe that. So let's say from a business point of view, if you were to give an advice to a young person, where to invest in the next one year or two years, because you cannot easily predict more than that, yeah. what would you say to this person? To invest their time or to invest their money? Time. Time. It, it would depend on the skills of the, and the passions of the person that I was talking to. So let's say the person is really quantitative, they're kind of a nerd. Great, go study machine learning. I think that's really easy. Mm -hmm. If they're an artistic or a creative type and they're interested in technology, some of the most expensive talents, some of the highest demand people in Silicon Valley are designers, are user interface, user experience designers, people who can take something very, very complicated and make it understandable to a normal human being. That's an amazing talent to have. So we're seeing a renaissance of design. Uh, if a person has good interpersonal skills, those skills are in great, great demand these days. So the ability to negotiate or motivate or coordinate or persuade, all the evidence says these skills are really, really valuable. So we still need people who can tap into social drives and motivate a team. Mm -hmm. And then finally, if people like working with their hands, 
We are going to have actual human carpenters and plumbers for a long, long time to come. And when you say that at, a, at an elite university, it sounds kind of silly. I think it's not silly at all. We actually need people who can do work in the physical world. And one of the mistakes that we've made in America is that we tend to look down on those professions. I think that's a, a big mistake, and I hope we fix it. If you were to invest some funds? You know, I had friends um, years ago who started whispering to me about this thing called Bitcoin. <laughs> and at the time, you had to spend, I'm, I'm serious, you had to spend like maybe close to $100 on a Bitcoin. And I said, you people are actually idiots. Like, what, what on earth is wrong with you? You're going to invest in this completely notional currency that's got the word crypto in front of it, uh, invented by somebody who was unknown to all of us and maintained by a network of miners all around the world that's not under anyone's control. You're an idiot, right? A Bitcoin is $13,000 these days. Okay, see, the, the, the silliness continues. I, I love the story about early in the history after they started programming the Bitcoin network, they were trying to figure out how, what, what, what is this worth and how do we convince anybody that it's worth anything? And as far as I know, the very first Bitcoin transaction for, for a good or a service was when one of the programmers said, okay, I will pay somebody I forget how much it was, it might have even been a thousand bitcoins, to bring me a pizza. And somebody did that. Hopefully they held on to their bitcoins this whole time, because that's the most expensive pizza in the history of humanity. Uh, if you have a really, 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 really robust appetite for risk, if you're a complete speculator with your investments, yeah. fine, go, go, go buy a bitcoin. Uh, you're very, if you're a speculator, you're very likely to end up broke, just in general. Mm -hmm. Uh, but if that's who you are, go buy some cryptocurrencies. Uh, in general, though, uh, I think the right thing to do, I follow Warren, Warren Buffett's investment advice, which is don't. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute.